Welcome to the Park Road Podcast for January 8th, 2017. Today's podcast is a sermon given by Russ Dean, co-pastor with Amy Jackstein at Park Road Baptist Church. His sermon today is entitled, Dividing by One. I couldn't figure out where Amy was going with that children's time, but it was a really appropriate introduction to the series that we are beginning. It's outlined on the back of your bulletin, Redefining Community. For the next two months, for this season of Epiphany, Friday was Epiphany. It's a celebration of the coming of the Magi and the the appearance of Christ to the nations. It's a season when we talk about light coming into the world from the darkest day of the year, which we've just crossed uh, into the spring, light coming into the world, light coming into the world through Christ and His appearing to the nations through the Magi. So that's the season of Epiphany. And during this season, we will be looking at a a, uh, series called Redefining Community. What made the early church a community? We'll look at some of the texts from the epistles, the letters to the early church, and see what we can learn from them in this day when we, as a community, as a state, as a nation, need community. What can we learn from them? If you have not seen the new motion picture, Hidden Figures, do not walk. Run to get your ticket. You need to see Hidden Figures It's the incredible story of three brave, visionary African-American women who fought the crippling tides of racial injustice to ply their brilliant minds in the service of the U.S. space program. It was the early 1960s, and we were engaged in a tense space race with the Russians. Yuri Gagarin had been hurled into orbit, and we were terrified that the red state had the upper hand. We needed to put an American in space, and President Kennedy challenged the nation, we choose to go to the moon. It was a challenge this nation needed, but we did not have the math to go into orbit, much less to get to the moon. Into a room filled with tents, overworked white men wearing white dress shirts and ties, marched a nervous but confident young woman named Katherine Johnson. Katherine Johnson was recruited from the West Computing Group, one of the colored computers who worked there. Now, this is just what they called African-American women who computed figures and and checked calculations in the days prior to the digital revolution. She was a colored computer. Catherine, the best colored computer her supervisor could recommend, slowly earned a reputation for brilliance Despite enduring the indignities of her day, she would take her work and run with her, run across campus more than a half a mile a couple times a day, just so she could use the colored ladies' restroom, the one that was located on the other side of NASA's campus. And and she would take her work with her so she wouldn't get behind in her work. And then she was relegated to that shameful colored coffee pot that appeared one day on the break table after she started working. 
Now, I don't know if the truth has been stretched for dramatic effect in the climactic scene of the movie, but John Glenn is shown waiting on the launch pad, standing there waiting on Catherine to compute the numbers, to confirm what they called the go, no-go window, the precise entry point from space which would guarantee his return and a safe trip. You see, the new IBM mainframe, which had recently been installed, had failed. The technology was too new to be trusted, and Colonel Glenn trusted only Catherine's numbers. She computed to five decimal points, and his three orbits around the Earth are now history. It's high time her name gets added to that incredible story. Go see Hidden Figures. But by contrast, I remember none of the higher math I took in school. Colonel Glenn could not have trusted my numbers to get him from his room to his rocket, much less into and out of outer space. I'm pretty good with my tutums still. You know, tutums two is four, tutums four is eight. I can do my tutums, and I remember a few mathematical rules, but that's about it for me. I do remember that any number divided by itself is 1. 12 divided by 12 is 1. 20 divided by 20 is 1. And I remember that any number divided by 1 is itself. 12 divided by 1 is 12. 20 divided by 1 is 20. But you should know by now that for me, math, like science and entertainment and politics and everything else, They all just serve at the mercy of theology. You understand? Hidden figures, my interest in hidden figures was not the cinematography, it's the theology. My concerns with our new president-elect are not partisan, they are theological. And about the best I can do with math these days is to use it whimsically to teach a theological lesson. So here's one. In 2011, the population of planet Earth exceeded 7 billion, and if you divide 7 billion by 7 billion, you get 1. It's theology, not math. We are all 1. Conversely, if you divide 7 billion by 1, you get 7 billion. These basic theorems teach what may be the most important lesson there is, the one lesson humanity must finally learn, and we are not there. The simple truth is that all seven billion of us, with our individual uniquenesses, skin colors and nationalities and incomes and educations and religions, all of us are really just alike. We are one. And in the brilliance of God's math, even when you give priority to the unity, if you divide all seven billion by our one common humanity, that division does not nullify our individuality. Seven billion divided by one is still seven billion. You understand? We are all one. And if we do not soon learn to recognize and appreciate that unity, our common humanity, 
we will not survive. Now, I'm not given to despair or to hysterics, but the capacity for total annihilation is within our possession. And one day, if we continue to fundamentally view the human race as us and them, one day they are going to use that violent capacity against us or we will use it against them. But either way, our violent division will spell the end of all of us. We are all just one. The many startling divisions across this nation alone, so clearly revealed in last year's election, are troubling. To borrow a phrase from our hymnal, that great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, our divisions threaten to undo us. In a November piece in, Washington, in the Washington Post, David Ignatius opined, Donald Trump's wildly polarizing rhetoric put the nation through a nightmarish campaign. He took raw wounds of race, class, and gender and tore at them until they bled. He created the equivalent of a national panic. America is strong, but it's fragile too. Trump says he wants to put it back together, but that job will be harder because of the damage he did himself. Now, whether Donald Trump actually heightened our divisions or just highlighted them may be a matter of debate, but what is crystal clear is that as a nation, today, we are not one. In that context and related to today's text, one commentator says this, Acts 10 might be a fine reminder of who we are called to be as God's church. We are coming off a year of profound disunity and rancor, and we face a new year that has vast uncertainty in terms of how people of different ethnic groups are going to be treated. There is fear in the land, palpable fear that we will disrespect anyone we deem as other in our midst. What happened to Peter in Acts 10 is proof positive that God wants nothing to do with that, and God does not want us to be a part of that either. Now, before I continue with the sermon, I want to try to make it clear that I have done my exegesis of today's text. If anyone hears my interpretation of this powerful passage as suggesting that the writer of this early Christian lesson was teaching the same kind of universal unity that I am exhorting, well, that is not what I believe this text says, properly speaking. Acts 10 is not about religious pluralism in a global context. There was one thing in the mind of this writer, as Joey has just told you, and that was an expansion of the theology of Jewish exclusivism to a theology that was large enough to accept Gentiles into that. This writer was not specifically endorsing universalism. Peter's dream was only about the expansion of Judaism into a world of the Gentiles. This was a source of immense tension for the earliest followers of Jesus and the synagogue which gave them birth. 
Peter's vision meant that there was no partiality between Jews and Gentiles. You could become a follower of Jesus without first becoming a Jew. Technically, that's what this text means. Similarly, in the text that we read in the litany that you just read responsively, there is one God of all. The writer of the book of Ephesians is probably not envisioning a God big enough to envelop Christians and Jews, Muslims and Baha'is, Unitarians and New Agers and secular humanists. That scripture that we quoted, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, refers to one Christian body. The text is ecumenical, but not necessarily interfaith. So when my critics tell me that we are not all children of God, as I believe, when my critics tell me that, and when they say that the New Testament refers to God as the father of the family that is made one in Jesus, when they say only Christians are part of this family, well, properly speaking, if you're reading the text very woodenly, they are probably right. The New Testament is a Christian document. In the context of defining itself over against the Judaism from which it derives, and in an effort to defend the legitimacy of a Christian faith in an atmosphere of persecution, the New Testament's literal texts are more limited than the universality that I glean from them. I hope you understand that. When I read and study and prepare a text, I want to be true to that text. I want to understand what it means and what it says, and I want you to know that I understand that. But there is no reason to believe God's inclusion stops here. No good reason that broader implications, a more universal application cannot be inferred from these texts. If God's welcome and love is large enough to bridge the divide between first century Jews and Gentiles, and if Jesus' example of daring inclusion is to serve as our example, then where does no partiality end? Peter learned that with God there is no partiality. Where does that end? And is it really no partiality if at some point rules and boundaries make it clear that God really is partial? The expansive love of God which Jesus tried to teach us is daring and freeing. The more we grow up, the more mature we become, the more boldly we can embrace these texts, the more boldly we can embrace that freedom for which Christ has set us free. I developed this idea that I'm talking about more thoroughly in last year's sermon called Easter, an anarchic revolution. Once you are free, there are no rules. I'll put a few copies in the narthex if anyone's interested in following up on that. So, all that is some background to this specific text 
If it's fair to imply from Jesus' life, to extrapolate from our Jewish and Christian texts that God's love really is for the whole world, that there really is no partiality with God, those of us who believe this better find a way to teach this lesson today. We are more divided than I have ever known our nation to be. Tomorrow, Amy and I are attending a session for pastors in town called The Church in the Age of Donald Trump. There's a lot of concern in the world today about what is happening in our country and how divided we are because of the language of our president-elect. As technology continues to bring our world together, our differences are more noticeable. And they are not going to go away if we do not find a theology that can embrace those differences. Our only future is mutually assured destruction. The Donald Trump era in U.S. politics is going to give us an opportunity to put this theology to the test. Now, I have already told you that math and movies and media and presidential politics are only important to me for their theological implications. So I hope I can use the following example and not be accused of preaching partisanship, okay? Determined to use his newfound bully pulpit and refusing to silence his Twitter thumbs, regardless how lacking in presidential decorum a 140-character tweet can be. The president-elect has just shamed the Ford Motor Company into not building a new plant in Mexico. That decision was hailed by the Make America Great Again crowd as proof positive of our bright new future under President Trump. But is it? Republicans and Democrats alike are concerned about Mr. Trump's tactics and economists across the political spectrum are wringing their hands. More than one commentator has tried to remind Mr. Trump that like many of our largest corporations, Ford Motor Company is now an international company. It's just that kind of world. The plant intended to be built in Mexico would have produced the cheapest cars in Ford's lineup. The models with the least profit margin so it made sense to produce these cars in a market where labor rates are lower. This was part of Ford's international strategy in their metric for profitability and job production. Ford would produce the Ford Focus in Mexico and its more expensive cars in the United States where it could afford to pay wages, higher wages, to U.S. workers. Ford would employ more people, they would make more cars, Everybody would win. So how will Ford build a $20,000 car if it now has to produce that car while paying competitive labor rates for U.S. workers? And if Mr. Trump keeps his word and imposes a 35% tariff on all foreign imports, the increase in imported material costs will make a $20,000 car sell for $27,000. And that car will now be out of reach of many who are in the market for an economy car. 
In a global economy demanding American-made and by American might come with a heavy cost starting right here with American. Now maybe Mr. Trump's brain is as good as he claims it is. Maybe he's just smarter than all those economists who are concerned. Only time will tell. Here's my concern. And here's why this episode is relevant to today's text and why it is relevant for a Christian pulpit, not as a partisan critique or a lesson in, econom in Economics 101, both of which are above my pay grade. My concern is that Mr. Trump's America-only, American-only tactics represent an insular mentality and a theology that says all that matters is us. Of course, this kind of theology has always garnered cheers from the down and out, and it always will, even when it is harmful in the long haul, as it usually is. If you are down and out, you cannot see the big picture. You cannot see the international look if you just need a meal. You can't see the big picture if you're down and out. That's what good leaders are for. Now, you have heard me say that the Bible is mostly about economics, so I take very seriously the importance of economic health especially to the middle and lower classes that have suffered under the weight of our income inequality and the incredible success of the top 1% of Americans. If Mr. Trump can strengthen the middle class and empower the powerless rural America we have heard so much about since the election, more power to him. But we are never stronger when we means just us. You understand that? We are never stronger when we means just us. And I don't care who we is, whether it's we, my family, or we, my church, or we, my party, or we, my state, or we, my nation. We are never stronger when we means just us. And this has never been more true than it is today. We live and work in a global community, religiously, economically, socially. We have got to learn to divide by one. Jesus' message continually challenged the powers that be, challenged them to break down the barriers, to push beyond, to see bigger than me and mine. His were subversive words. It's dangerous to try to expand circles of inclusion and exclusion beyond the bounds of conventional wisdom. Jesus redefined family and religious certainty and national priority and economy. And that is why they killed him. But in his life and death and resurrection, Jesus offers us a new vision of humanity and divinity and community. And we must learn it if we are going to survive. Life is always bigger than just us. 
We've got to learn to divide by one. May it be so. We invite you to learn more about Park Road at parkroadbaptist.org. Park Road is a progressive faith community located in Charlotte, North Carolina, encouraging independent thought, community service, social justice, and interfaith understanding. Today's podcast was produced with production help from Hugh Ashcraft, Brian Smith, Bruce White, and Rich Dower. Our theme music was composed by Brandon Michael Williams. Thanks for listening today. Grace and peace to you. Thank you.